we're going to hear from God. We're going to hear from God from the book of Obadiah this morning. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to open up to your table of contents, put everybody on a level playing field. Don't kid, you don't know where Obadiah is. You just don't. And that's all right. If you do, well, then you should be in the front row because you're head of the class. Turn to your table of contents, find the book of Obadiah. It's in between Amos and Jonah, page 862, if you're using the same Bible as I am. And uh, we will read the entire passage together. This morning we are uh, beginning a series that we are calling Hit Singles. And it's a study through all the one-chapter books of the Bible. We figure after 28 chapters and 60 sermons in the Gospel according to Matthew, it might be nice to look at some of the less well-known books in the Scriptures, the one-chapter books, the hit singles. And uh, this morning we find ourselves in Obadiah. So let me read all 21 verses, and then we'll dive in. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set up a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress, for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. 
And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Amen. I think we better pray, don't you? Let's pray one more time before we dive in. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word and to see the relevance and the application of this word to our lives today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every now and then, I hear an encouraging message about preaching. Whether that word is a word about preaching in general or preaching a specific book or passage in particular, every now and then I hear an encouraging message about preaching, the sort of uh, fitting word in due season that inspires me to the task that I have been called to, to make known the word of God through the clear and public proclamation of the scriptures. This week was not one of them. I open up an article entitled, Six Reasons You Should Preach Through Obadiah, written by a man by the name of Clint Archer, a faithful Baptist preacher in South Africa. And in that article, I found two sentences that almost completely deflated me. The first was this. Nestled in the uncharted backwaters of the minor prophets, Obadiah's missive to Edom is like a rare bird. Experts can be expected to appreciate it, but most folks are barely aware of it. Of its existence. Obadiah, the rare bird, appreciated only by the most dedicated ornithologists. You can look that up later. Uh, bird lovers. And then I thought to myself, Kendall Hunter isn't even going to be here this morning. Obadiah, the rare bird. The second sentence went like this. Obadiah is the spleen of the Old Testament. We know it's there, but most of us are hazy about its role in the body. Obadiah, the lowly spleen, acknowledged and yet mysterious. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the excitement with which my heart leapt when I realized that I would stand before you this morning and say, please open your Bibles to the spleen of the Old Testament. But as I sat and thought about it, though, and as I continued to study this book, I realized that though Mr. Archer and I will probably have most things in common, I have to disagree with him about his imagery regarding the book of Obadiah. I think that there is a better image for this beautiful, beautiful Old Testament book, and that is Obadiah is a hidden gem. Obadiah is a hidden gem. Not a rare bird, not a spleen, but a hidden gem. Yes, Obadiah is the deep cut from your favorite band that's on your playlist, but likely isn't on very many others. Obadiah is the diner that you and your family make sure to stop at every time you travel through the back end of the Old Testament. Obadiah is the book that you love to read, even though it's never going to make the New York Times bestsellers list, and likely will never be named as your favorite preacher's favorite book. 
It does not stand tall with the Genesises and the Romans and the Revelations and certainly not the Gospels of John. And yet this is God's word to his people today. Yes, Obadiah is a hidden gem. And what do people do with hidden gems? They do their best to make sure that they don't remain quite so hidden. You take that gem and you hold it up to the light and you twist it around and show all of its preciousness and value and worth so that others might come to appreciate it just as much as you do. If you've ever met someone who has a favorite hole-in-the-wall restaurant, you'll know that they're practically insufferable in their desire for you to visit that restaurant as well. And so count me among those who are insufferable in wanting to hold up the hidden gem of Obadiah to you for your appreciation and growth. I want to suggest to you that this book has something so profound and meaningful to say to us for this particular moment in the church's history. Because the question that this book really addresses is, will there be justice in the end? Is there such thing as justice? Can we count on the God of the Bible to execute justice? Everywhere we look, we see injustice. It doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum you fall on. It's, it's undeniable that there is injustice in the world around us. And the question becomes, will God ever make things right? And forget about for a moment sort of the large-scale injustices that we see. What of the injustices in our own lives? Mistreated by family members, abandoned by those who uh, should love us the most, ridiculed or persecuted for our faith, maligned, slandered, etc. Every one of us has suffered injustice, even as every one of us has perpetuated injustice. Will God make things right? And the answer to that question that old Obi gives here in his solo shot in the Old Testament is that the day of the Lord is coming, and with it, judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. That's the message of Obadiah. Let me say it again. The day of the Lord is coming, and with it, judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. Now, I'm a big fan of simplicity, and this is not a simple book. So what I want to do is I want to do my best to make the message of this book simple. And the way I want to do that is by asking three very basic questions of the passage. The first is, what will happen to Edom, verses 1 to 9? The second is, why will it happen to Edom, verses 10 to 14? And then thirdly and finally, when will it happen to Edom, verses 15 to 21? Now don't get confused. Even though we're talking about a historical document addressed to a nation that we are unfamiliar with, that does not mean that this is not God's word for you. One of the real mysteries of Obadiah is that this is a vision or a prophecy about a nation that doesn't receive the prophecy. Israel receives the prophecy. This is Israel's scriptures. And so even though it has to do with Edom, it has something encouraging to say to Israel. And so therefore it has something encouraging to say to the church. So let's do pay attention and follow along as we hold up this hidden gem. What will happen to Edom? Verses 1 to 9. Now, there is enough in this passage to make you want to grab a Bible dictionary, isn't there? There's certainly enough in this passage for me to want to make sure that I pronounced all of the names correctly. 
a couple of weeks ago when I read from the Psalms, uh, I mispronounced something, and one of the dear brothers here in the church, Mark Johnston, made sure to let me know that I mispronounced it. And so I checked with him and his family before I, I read any of these verses this week. I'm just kidding. We love you, and can't wait till you're back uh, after traveling this week. But nevertheless, there are a lot of names here that we're not familiar with. Look at verse 1, Edom. Then again, uh, some of us might be unfamiliar in verse 8 with Esau. And then yet and still in verse 9, who is T-Man? I've heard of He-Man, but not T-Man. Who are these people, and what do they have to say to us as we try to understand the message of Obadiah? Well, all that you really need to know to get up to speed on this book is to understand that long ago, back in the Old Testament, go back as far as you possibly can, well, not quite as far as you possibly can, but really far, into Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, later and better known as Abraham, to leave his family and to be the recipient of the covenant of God, the blessing of being part of God's people. And Abraham then passed the blessings of that covenant on to his descendants. It goes first from Abraham to his son Isaac. And then from Isaac to his son, cut the tape, we've got a problem. Because in the book of Genesis, don't literally cut the tape, it was a figure of speech. In the book of Genesis, there's a problem when Isaac comes to have children through his, his wife, Rebecca, as we are trying to figure out who the blessings of the covenant are going to flow to. And it comes to us in Genesis chapter 5, verse 23. You might like to write this down. Two nations, this is the Lord speaking, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Rebecca's got twins. So how are we going to determine which one of these boys receives the blessing of the covenant from Abraham and then from Isaac and so forth? If you've ever read the Bible at all in the Old Testament, you'll know how this works out because I can guarantee you you've never heard God refer to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. No, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all day, every day. So the blessing flows to Jacob rather than Esau. Esau sees this, and after a, a whole host of events you can read about in, in Genesis uh, really 25 all the way through 36, Esau sells his birthright, he's cheated out of his blessing by his brother Jacob, so he does what every wayward son does, he marries a couple of wild women, and he starts a family east of Israel in a place called Sire. Now, fast forward in history, I mean lightning quick, we're now in 597 to 586 BC. Israel is in the land that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, but they're about to be thrown out. They're about to be thrown out because of their sin and their disobedience. They didn't keep the covenant that they had made with their God. And so therefore, the Lord in his justice brings the Babylonians from even further east to come and take his people into exile. If you want to just sort of envision all of the geography in, in a familiar way, we might say if we are Israel, then Esau would be like Delaware and Babylon would be somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, okay? Um, but the Babylonians come, and they wipe out Jerusalem. They, they leave very few survivors, and they tear down the, the temple. It's an absolute tragedy. And in the midst of all of this, Esau, also known as Edom, as his family grows, they become the nation of Edom. So Esau and Edom are interchangeable. 
One of his grandsons is Teman. So here we have the whole family. As this nation is sitting just east of Israel, they do nothing as God executes his judgment on his people. They just watch. And before long, they progress from just watching to actually actively participating in the destruction of Jerusalem. They kick God's people while they're down. And see, that doesn't sit very well with the Lord. And so he's got a vision for Edom. He's got something to say to those who would perpetuate violence and oppress his people. And it's a message of justice. And someone says, well, why in the world would God execute justice against a nation that was in the first place executing his justice against his people? Well, one of the breathtaking things about the Old Testament, you'll know, is that God is able to use sinful nations to execute his justice against his own people and then judge those very nations for their violence. Breathtaking sovereignty. Everything is under the Lord's control. So here we have Esau, Edom, Teman, and God has got a message. What is going to happen to Edom? I want to give you what's going to happen to them in lightning speed as we continue to make our way, or really begin to make our way through the passage. But the first thing is that they will be risen against. Look at verse 2, really verse 1. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Edom will be risen against. God is sending out messengers and envoys into all of the surrounding nations, saying there's a battle that's about to take place. Boys, get your weapons ready. We're going to Edom. That's spectacular. That's, that's, that's pretty punk rock, right? We're going to rise up against the oppressors. Let's go. That's God's message to the surrounding nations around Edom. They're going to be risen against. But secondly, they're going to be brought down. They're going to be brought down, verses 2 to four. You'll notice all of the imagery of verses two to four has to do with being brought down, being exalted and lofty, and yet having a reversal take place where Edom will be brought low. What you need to know about Edom is that they literally made their dwellings on the side of a mountain, Mount Esau. Their, their homes were literally like in the mountain, if you think of like uh, Acapulco uh, in, in, in Mexico. It's literally built into the mountain. And what the Lord says here as he speaks of bringing Edom down is he really shows them that the way that they've built their dwelling is a mirror or a, a, a window rather into their own souls. It's a picture of pride. High and lofty. Who will bring us down? We've built our homes right there in verse 3 in the clefts of the rock. But the Lord says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, can you get any higher? Though your nest is set among the stars, from there, it does not matter how high you go from there, the Lord will bring you down. Reminds me almost immediately of the Tower of Babel where the people build a, a tower as high as they possibly can, and the Lord has, says, I have to come down to even see it. No matter how high you go, no matter how far you run, you will be brought down. Obadiah could have gone to the people with the message of Johnny Cash, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. You'll be brought down, not only risen against, but brought down, and 
Furthermore, you'll be cleaned out, verse 5. Verses 5 and 6. You'll be cleaned out if thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, if grape gatherers came to you. We've got thieves, plunderers, and grape gatherers. Oh, my. All pictures of people who come and take. Take what's not theirs. But at the same time, a picture of those who take what's not theirs while leaving some behind. Would they not steal only enough for themselves is the rhetorical question, the, the sarcastic question poised by the Lord here. I, this is weird, but everywhere I've lived, <laughs> the people around me have been robbed. <laughs> so when I was a young child, the neighbor across the street, the Lucas family, one day a guy came into the house, stole all kinds of stuff, and, 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 and yet left some things behind. When I lived in Akron, uh, uh, the house next door to me, uh, somebody came and pulled into the, the garage while they were out of town and stole TVs and watches and fancy cigars and the like, but they left things behind. Now, lest you get suspicious of me, because these things happen very often in close proximity to me, when I was, when I was in college, I had that common experience for many of us back in that time, and my car was broken into, and someone stole my CD player out of my car. If you can remember these compact discs that they used to put music on. It was really state-of-the-art back in the, the 90s. But somebody broke into my car, and they stole my CD player. But you know what they left? They left, they left all of my CDs. And I think that that was actually more insulting. <laughs> like, you can take my CD player, but you don't want my, my NoFX albums? What's wrong with NoFX, right? They, wouldn't, they didn't want my music. They just wanted my CD player. But the point remains that even when people come and steal Thieves, plunderers, grape gatherers, they, they leave something behind. But in verse 6, the Lord says, you're going to be cleaned out, pillaged. Your treasures will be sought out. There will be absolutely nothing left. This is a picture of total destruction. Risen against, brought down, cleaned out, sold out, verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. Those who eat bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Listen, the people who are going to perpetuate this justice against you are going to be the people that you feel most secure around. You're going to be sold out, betrayed. This is God's justice. And then finally, cut off verses 8 and 9. I hope you're beginning to come up with a, a picture of this nation that boasted of its ingenuity living in the clefts of the rock, political wisdom, military might, that was Edom's game. But look at what the Lord says in verses 8 and 9. It doesn't matter if we're talking about wise guys or tough guys, they're all going to be cut off. Will I not destroy the wise men? Your mighty men shall be dismayed. None of your political ingenuity, none of your wisdom, none of your might, none of your nothing will be able to spare you on the day when every one of your men will be cut off by slaughter. Now that's justice. Harsh justice, isn't it? The question is why? We know what will happen to Edom, okay? We've got this sweeping statement of justice, but why? Why will it happen to Edom? Here, let's turn to verses 10 to 14 and understand the encouragement and the consolation that the scriptures mean to give you if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. Why will this happen to Edom? Verse 10, don't have to look very far for the answer. Look at how it begins. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Firstly, because of violence. 
because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, your twin brother. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. You're violent men. And violence will be judged with violence. But in addition to the violence, we have aloofness, verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, that is, when you turned the other way, said that's not my problem. Before they were ever even active participants in the destruction of Jerusalem, they were complicit. Did you hear? Look down at your Bible. See what God says. Before they were even active participants, when you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. I outed myself as, as kind of a, a nerd uh, the past few weeks. People say, well, you outed yourself as a nerd a long time ago. You're just confirming it week by week. But you'll know that Peter Parker's phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, flows directly from the fact that as, as someone is robbing the place where he first debuts as Spider-Man, he says, it's not my problem. Doesn't stop. Doesn't stop the man. And then later the man kills his Uncle Ben. Complicit because of his aloofness. It's the scar that he carries around in, in his life, his fictional life, for the rest of time. Because of your aloofness, your ability to say, it's not my problem, I'm going to turn the other way, I'm really not going to interest myself in somebody else's affairs, I can't be bothered. Well, for that, you're going to have to be judged. But the aloofness doesn't last long because we go from violence to aloofness to gloating, rejoicing, boasting. Look at this flurry of do-nots that, that condemn the Edomites and their injustice. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. Why are you boasting? Well, somebody else falls. What in the world's wrong with you? Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. What, who do you think you are? You think you can't catch a right hook just like Judah, Edom? Who do you think you are? Not only boasting, but look at this. Verse 13. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Oh, Babylon broke down the gate. Let's go, Edom. Too cowardly to do it themselves. They'll sure ride on Babylon's coattails. Do not gloat over the day of his disaster. Do not loot his wealth. Oh, there's something to take. Let's get while the getting's good. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do you understand the imagery here is that the Edomites, as, as Israel is fleeing the city, as God is raining down his judgment upon his own people, people are fleeing the city and Edom is standing on the road, capturing them and selling them into slavery to Babylon. This is oppression and persecution and injustice at its finest, perpetuated against God's chosen people, his beloved. You think God's going to let that slide? Every good husband here 
knows that he will do whatever it takes to defend the honor of his wife and his children, right? This is God's beloved bride. He tells them in, in the book of Ezekiel, I found you like a virgin, dismissed, and I, 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 I wooed you to myself. I won you for myself. You're going to stand by and watch some Edomite suckers come in and do this kind of oppression and violence? Of course not. They're going to have to be risen against. They're going to have to be brought down. They're going to have to be cleaned out, sold out, cut off. But the question is when? I think that's the question that we ask, isn't it? As it relates to justice, whether corporate, big, large-scale justice or individual justice, when? It's not necessarily that we, we, at least we would admit it, we wouldn't ever say out loud, we don't believe God is just. I would hope none of us would say, I don't think God has it in him to do what's right. No, what often sort of prevails upon our hearts and weighs our hearts down is the question of when will he do it? It's not a question of if, it's when, when, God. When will we see the church no longer persecuted? When will we see justice for the unborn? When will we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation treated as equals? When? And the Lord tells us on the day of the Lord. When will this happen to Edom? When will God execute justice? Look at verse 15. For, here is the basis. You understand? The for there gives the basis. On what basis can Obi the prophet Say, God's going to get Edom. There's got to be something factual to base that kind of assertion on. We don't just make things up because we hope them to be true. There's got to be something grounded in biblical reality that makes us conclude the way we conclude. And the basis here in verse 15 is, The day of the Lord is near upon not just Edom. Look, all the nations... A day on which the principle will be, as you have done, it shall be done to you, and your deeds shall return on your own head. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Just as you have done, God will do to you. The day of the Lord is near. When will it happen to Edom? The day of the Lord. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, and as you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you, Edom, have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is a day of Judgment against God's enemies and salvation for God's people. That is the day of the Lord. There is a day coming set in the eternal counsels of God on which every enemy, every single enemy of God will be judged. 
and only his people will be saved. Now, in the Old Testament, there is something that takes place where the prophets will call something a day of the Lord or the day of the Lord, but it isn't actually the final day of the Lord. It's almost like the prophets are, are squeezing together all of the acts of judgment and salvation of God into one category so that we can learn something from the days of the Lord as they unfold in the Old Testament about the future that we await in Christ. And here, God says that the judgment upon Edom is sort of a forward or an advance on the judgment that's going to happen on all of the nations. Edom will drink, verse 16, and so will be drunk as though they had never been. You can drink yourself to death, I'm told, <laughs> never tried. You can drink yourself to death. And here in this text, the, 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 the cup that is handed over to the nations is the cup of God's judgment. The cup, you remember, that Jesus prays might pass him as he's in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, not my will, but your will be done. Now, Edom will drink the full cup of God's wrath, even as all of the nations will on that day, the final day. But see, this is not a day simply of judgment. This is a day of salvation. Look at verse 17. Now, there are many place names that, that kind of flow from verse 17 and on. Just suffice to say what, what Obi is doing is he's bringing all of the exiles, all the people that are sent out of the land when Babylon comes, he's bringing them all back. God's salvation. And they're going to take back what is rightfully theirs. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. I love the CSB here. It's way better. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. They're coming back. Everybody's getting booted out. The house of Jacob will be like a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. Jacob, the southern kingdom. Joseph, the northern kingdom. And the house of Esau stubble, and they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. You know, it, it, it's not difficult for us to sort of picture the imagery here that Obadiah is trying to paint for us. All you have to do is look at California and those crazy wildfires that have been flaming and flaring since August. People have designated a word to describe those that we previously didn't have. They are uh, the California wildfires are a gigafire. A gigafire represents a flame that has burned over one million acres. Think about how ravaging and, and, and spreading quickly that, that flame has been. 200,000 people have been displaced. Experts from Stanford estimate the damage could be in the range of $10 billion dollars. State parks have even taken significant damage. Thousands facing evacuation orders. President Trump releasing federal aid to assist in the containment and the relief efforts. Think about how destructive. Now look at this imagery of God's people riding on their enemies. God's people like fire and flame and their enemies like stubble. As God leads them back into the land... 
which he does. To the point that those of the Negev possess Mount Esau and all the different exiles from a variety of places come back. What Obadiah does here is he paints this return to the land in similar language. Now, friends, we've got to, we've got to be biblically literate to understand the Bible. That, that shouldn't be. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. You've got to be biblically literate to understand the Bible because what Obadiah is doing is he's saying, do you remember the book of Judges? Remember when we went into the land that God had promised us and we booted everybody out? Well, when we come back from exile, it's going to be the same deal. Do you remember the book of Judges? When after we booted everybody out of the land, there was no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. By the way, Nothing will undo a nation, a church, an organization than, uh, quick, more quickly than everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. But do you remember the book of Judges? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And God raises up saviors or deliverers to rule over the people. Verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. On that day, this day that has happened, when God caused the Babylonians to turn back his justice, not on Israel, but Edom, Use the same nation to execute justice against Edom. He does exactly what he says he will do. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Did you, did you boast over the calamity of Israel? Well, here comes the day of your calamity. Did you loot his possessions? Well, guess what? Your possessions are going to be looted. Did you wait in the, the cross streets to cut off the people of Israel? Your mighty men and your wise men will be utterly cut off. There will be judgment against every and all enemies of God and salvation for his people, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And loved ones, the same is true for you and for me in the year 2020. No matter what we've experienced or are experiencing now, God has set a day where justice will fall. Now that is good news for each and every one of us who has placed our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and to have friendship with God. But it is fearful, it is frightful, it is terrifying news. If you're here this morning and you remain outside of Christ, there's nothing worse. Obadiah is one of the Old Testament books that, to my knowledge, is never quoted in the New Testament. But that's not to say that the themes of Obadiah do not appear in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 concerning the day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, 
are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Friends, as Jesus hung on that cross on Calvary, what he was experiencing was an advance payment of the day of the Lord for you. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath that is reserved for every one of God's enemies. And he completely drained it. So that those who look to Jesus alone Not the moment of my decision, not my baptism. When I, look at Jesus alone. Only those can say God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But while the, the image of Jesus hanging on the cross is a glorious thing to those who have trusted him and who love him and who follow him, it is a, an absolutely horrific sight if you remain outside of Jesus, because that's what God has reserved for you. God is so committed to justice that he doesn't let anything slide. There is not a sin or an injustice or an oppression that will not be met with the full and passionate swift judgment of God. My sin included. The incredible thing is that the judgment that God had reserved for me, Jesus said, yeah, I'll have that. The justice that screams out for my blood, Jesus says, take mine instead. And there's a day coming, loved ones, when Jesus will return. And it will be the full and the final and the ultimate, the day of days, the day of the Lord, where all of God's enemies are judged and all of God's people are saved. God will ride on his enemies. And he will save his people. So what is the point of this obscure Old Testament book sort of tucked in the minor prophets, a, a book addressed to a nation that none of us really are even familiar with, Edom. Who, who has anything to do with Edom? The point of this book is to give you comfort that justice will fall. Calvin writes of the book of Obadiah by saying that this book threatens the Edomians or the Edomites for the sake of administering consolation to the chosen people. If we're going to end with a quote, it's better to end with Paul than Calvin. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another. It bring to bear the day that Jesus will return, 
Bring that to bear with your brothers and sisters to encourage them. Who isn't exhausted? Give me a break. Every one of us is exhausted. Who hasn't gotten beaten up in the last six months? Every one of us has gotten beaten up in the last six months. Dear brother and sister, let me tell you something. On this day, you think you'll remember the last six months at all? I mean, really? When you stretch things out and you view all of the hardship that you faced, all the injustice that you faced in your life, I'm sure we could sit and sling it and fling it. We've all had enough, haven't we? Justice is going to fall. If you didn't believe it, all you got to do is find Edom on a map. Good luck. And then look right at the cross where God's justice poured out with fury and mercy upon his very own son so that you and I might live. What is the message of Obadiah? The day of the Lord is coming, and with it, judgment against God's enemies and salvation for God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the relevance of your word. We marvel at your wisdom that you would speak this word of judgment against Edom to console your people. And we find ourselves here in the 21st century in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, a place that no one had ever even heard of when Obadiah was preaching. We find our hearts encouraged, consoled, built up, in awe of your amazing and matchless justice. God, you alone are God, and you will judge your enemies and save your people. Saving us not because we are worthy or we've done anything to avert your judgment, but solely because you poured out justice upon Jesus. Because you've done that, Father, your word is very clear. You are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in your son. And so I pray for every single soul here. Lord, I pray that each and every one would have an abiding and true faith in Jesus. Pray for any who are sort of uh, hoping that something that they've done might tip the balance in their favor, whether it's baptism or whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that they would know that that only Jesus can wash away our sin, that they would look to him and be saved, even now, even this morning, Lord. Warm our hearts in Christ. Encourage us. Give us boldness. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may you go in his grace the knowledge that God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Amen.